Thomas Watson, maybe you've heard that name before, a 17th century Puritan pastor, remarked that he found two things difficult in preaching. Quote, firstly, to make the wicked sad, and secondly, to make the godly joyful. Found difficult to make the wicked sad and the godly joyful. A speaker, a preacher, if gifted enough, can work on crowds, a crowd's emotions. But can a mere man produce repentance in the hearts of people from their sins? Can a mere man take those who are truly down and give them a settled joy that is present even in pain, current pain? Well, let's think about it together from God's Word. Let's take our Bibles and look at Nehemiah chapter 8 again and see if we can find answers to these questions. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the pew. Page 424, 425 in the Bible that's provided. And as you're turning there, let me remind you the background. Ezra and Nehemiah, really one book recounting the return from the Babylonian captivity and exile, which then would go to lead to them rebuilding the temple there in Jerusalem and the extension of that temple that marked them off, which was the city walls. These books are really unique because, well, they reveal how the Jewish people uh, and all who wanted to join their community to become part of their covenant community lived out the old covenant law while under Persian rule. Those are unique circumstances to live out the old covenant law under Persian rule. They would have to learn to live as pilgrims in their own historic ancestral land. They knew one day the land, even the earth, would be Messiah's and all those under his reign. But do they, what do they do in the meantime? Well, they were to live by faith in God's promises, devote themselves to seeking God, and devote themselves to obeying his word. Nehemiah had accomplished the assignment the Lord had given him. We might say rebuilding the wall was the easy work, and we know how stressful that period was. The difficult task of building the spiritual lives of the people was only the beginning. You see, building people, making disciples, that takes time, doesn't it? This chapter, chapter 8, shows us the importance of God's word in his people's lives, in the lives of his children. And the people told Ezra to bring the book of the laws where we left off last time, ask for the word. And so the request led to one of the greatest worship services, Bible conferences ever recorded in God's Word in Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, let's continue to pick up where we left off. Nehemiah chapter 8, now verses 9 through 12 this morning. Here now, God's holy word. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go. And eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. This is God's word. Three times in this section, 
the call not to grieve and weep goes out, and it's because of the grace that is in this day that is holy, and because the joy of the Lord is their strength, and because they gained understanding. Why do these who are mourning get to experience joy? Well, let's think about the central truth here. It's there for you in your bulletin. There can be rejoicing for those who have godly sorrow. There can be rejoicing for those who have godly sorrow. Point number one. Conviction raises awareness of God's holiness. Conviction raises awareness of God's holiness. Focusing on verse 9. Why were the people told not to mourn and weep? Do not grieve. Verse 9, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law, the book of Moses. This day, which was holy, uh, set apart unto God, is met with holy sorrow over sin. It was profound sadness, as you can see in the text, not over the consequences, but there was remorse for their own failures and those of their ancestors. As the word was read, the weight was felt. I'm using the term conviction here in my outline in the sense of being convicted of guilt before God. God's word, beloved, has a way of laying our souls bare, naked, and exposed, unable to hide what's in the heart. We cannot cover ourselves from the omniscience of God no more than Adam and Eve could cover themselves in the garden. And the truth has a way of piercing our hearts, doesn't it? Conviction of sin is God's means of making sin repulsive to us. Why wouldn't we preach God's word and talk about the things that his word talks about? It's God's way of showing us how separated we are. Our tendency is to, you know, think falsely of our good deeds outweighing our bad. But the word shows us that our sins are as high as the heavens. We just don't see them very well. The word shows us the ugly truth of how we have hated God, which is heavy enough, but it shows how we also have actually hated others. And we have a natural allergic reaction to the truth. We can naturally be good at seeing others' sins, as we saw in the New Testament this morning. But God's word makes us see we are far more sinful than we think we are, and more, way more than others think we are, too. You see, the word unpacks the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which we naturally suppress. Imagine what was be going on in the minds here as the law was read, explained, and applied. Can you imagine with me that great, great, great gathering of people and the, and the words going forward, it's being applied and understood? I mean, did the person in the crowd who was in a pattern of grumbling to those around him begin to feel exposed as he revisited the children of Israel in the wilderness and think, yeah, I'm just like Miriam. I'm just like those who rebelled. Did men in the crowd come in contact with Adam's sin in the garden freshly and see their lack of care of the home? Did women in the crowd come in contact freshly with the, with the Genesis account and how their desires in the home would be to take the lead? Your, your desire will be for him, as Genesis says to overtake him. 
where the men who saw their passions passed before their eyes about, uh, you know, as it was read aloud, as the Ten Commandments were read aloud, and as people were exposed, as you see the different narratives in the Old Testament law, where they were there those sins passing right in front of their eyes as the word was read about money and sex and power, where the people who were, who were fornicating or committing adultery or even indulging in, in homosexuality aware that now that they were like Adam and Eve, naked, exposed, and ashamed before God's holy law. You know, were the dads in that great gathering, you know, did they realize how they had failed to prioritize God and, and keep the law always before the, the family? Were, the, were there some teenagers goofing around and all of a sudden convicted of how they had spoken to their parents? You know, were there parents who realized that they were not easy to follow as parents because of sinful anger and inconsistencies? I mean, could, could families who were there under the law, could they see the ways they had put on religious looks outwardly, you know, Sunday best look, but covered up the way they acted behind closed doors? Maybe some saw how they hated people who were not of their ethnicity and culture. They despised the foreigner and alien who was trying to come in. Maybe there was a man or woman who came face to face with the fact that they had resented faithful believers who made them more aware of their sins. They just resented them and they had to come face to face with the fact they didn't like them because they were sinning. They themselves were sinning. I imagine many saw how they had coveted, lusted after their neighbor's things like money and spouses and jobs and public honors and other possessions. Oh my goodness, the word if you listen to it, will lay you open. God's word for some produces new life through conviction of sin, and for others, it sobers them back to the truth. So my question for us is this. Do you feel conviction for your sin? If you can't, you're spiritually dead, and you need to be born again. You need to ask God to open your eyes to the truth. All of us have sinned. And how sad to see that there is a creation around you. All this glorious display of a great designer. And suppress the fact in your mind and your heart, you won't have to answer to him. You're not going to live your, you know, there's no reason to live your life unto him. Just suppress it and suppress it and suppress it. But Jesus said this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, it's a good sign when a gathering like this sees themselves as sinners with a realization that sin rendered them answerable to God's holy, just punishment. The people wept collectively with sobs of contrition and a sense of unworthiness. Who does this work of convincing people of their sins? God does it. The Spirit of God is apparently working here convincing these Jews of their sins as the law was read, taught, and applied. We should never take moments of grace like this for granted, beloved. God chose to work at this time in their history. This is the kind of thing we pray for, that God would send revival. Jesus told the disciples after his departure, though, his spirit would no longer be localized, but would be global in John 16. The spirit will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment about sin because they don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
You see, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to prove people in their hearts that they are in wrong against God. That's why we want to preach the word. That's why we want to share the gospel in truth. Billy Graham said in his book, The Journey, greater still is the Spirit's power to use God's word to convict us of sin and give us new birth. I feel so helpless as a preacher and wonder if I've done enough to make the gospel clear, but I know that only the Holy Spirit can open eyes to the truth, end quote. The Spirit starts the process of people turning to believe in Jesus. He persuades repentance. And one of the more striking features of revival moments and the depth of repentance is into which uh, both saints and sinners are led. And repentance involves turning away from sin towards God. It's taking God's side against our sin. So God convicts us. God awakens us to our guilt. It's his act of mercy to lead us then to faith. My question, though, again, is do you know anything of this? Have you ever experienced scriptures searching, scriptures exposing work, rendering you bare before the Lord? There's no experience of grace without this unmasking of our sin by the Holy Spirit. There is no experience of grace without this unmasking of our sin by the Holy Spirit. Maybe today you want to take a light view of sin and refer to it as human weakness, but God says it brings us death. Maybe you try to call it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Maybe you pass it off as admirable. God says it's an abomination. You see, we want to excuse ourselves of sin, but God must convict us of it, and he wants to save us from it. Sin is no amusing toy, beloved. It's a terror to be shunned. So we must learn what sin is in the eyes of God. Let me just give you some some. A simple teaching on it here. Sin is lawlessness, transgressing the law of God. We've all rebelled against God. We live for ourselves. We make idols out of money, power, and sex. We take his gift of sex to to marriage for procreation and turn it into recreation, destroying one another. Sin is deviating from what is right, and that includes our inner motivation. Each person, James says, is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, James 1. Sin is putting self in the place of God. You see, the very DNA of sin is selfishness, centering your affection on yourself instead of reaching out with your heart to embrace God. And sin is unbelief. That is an insult to the truth of God. And unbelief rejects the word of God and refuses Christ, the word made flesh. Well, friends, the cost of sin, because it's, it's treason against our maker, The cost of sin, the wages of sin is death because God is pure and God is good. And the pure and holy God of heaven cannot coexist with sin. We are at war with God in our sins and transgressions. And none of us has the ability to save ourselves from it, to cleanse ourselves from our heart's own corruption. And so let me be clear. There's conversations in the news media about this war going on or this conflict happening in this city or in that country, but the greatest warfare on the planet, it's not between nations and people groups, it is between you and God, between us and God. So are you allowing, friends, the truth to penetrate deep in your heart? Do you walk away from the word and think of other sins as the word is preached? Are you wanting to elbow somebody else in the room as the word is preached? Or have you taken time to deal with your own sin? 
You know, only one. There's only been one who could truly think of other sins. And he thought about them not in comparison, but, but in sadness because he was one with the Father. He was grieved by their sin and he was weighed down with the pain of knowing he would bear the payment for their sins. And that one's name is Jesus, who never sinned. And God gives grace to the humble, beloved, not to the self-righteous. And until you are convinced you are in desperate need, that you are a sinner, you'll never reach out and bow before Christ and say, save me. So pray, pray for awareness of sin that we might repent by his grace. There can be rejoicing for those who have godly sorrow. Number two, celebration. Celebration comes from God's grace. Celebration comes from God's grace. Look at the text, verse 10. You see people, you know, God's people, even though their sins are many, are called to rejoice because his mercy is more. Look here how God's mercy to them is so evident and bringing them back to himself here in redemptive history, in the truth. He's brought them together in this gathering to praise him, to rejoice in him, to worship him. And the word of God brings conviction that leads to repentance, but it also brings joy. The same word that wounds is the same word, interestingly enough, that heals. How? Well, let's look at what God does here. The day, as you can see in the text, the day is holy to the Lord. Why? In remembering his redemption of them. Commemorated in the festival of booths or tabernacles. Remember the festival every Israelite was to live for seven days in these during the festival? Had to be pretty neat to do this. Some of you are like, I'm not signing up for that right now. But uh, it had to be tremendously interesting to do this, to see this illustration of when their fathers lived in booths after the exodus from Egypt. It points to the truth that Israel's life rested upon that redemption, which in its ultimate meaning is the forgiveness of sins. Don't, when you see the booths, you're, don't get hung up there. Think about the deliverance and redemption that they experienced. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a joyful event, and so the command to trust in God's redemption to come through celebrating in advance. Because there's a redemption to come. This is a dress rehearsal, he's saying. We're getting ready for a greater redemption to come. This was no time to mourn now. It's, it's not the time to mourn. It's the time to celebrate God's redeeming grace and bringing them back, putting them under his word in anticipation of a great salvation to come. And so the people in this context understood their own return from captivity as a second exodus. They should also see a greater one to come, a greater mediator of a greater covenant to come as well, which Deuteronomy promises. The prophet, the priest, king, servant of the Lord, true son of God, son of man, would bring this ultimately one day in himself. Which reminds us who fulfills that, what Christ does. Christ is the only way for sinners like you and I to have peace with God. We are at enmity in our sin, but Christ can make peace for us with God. And he does through his blood on the cross. He came from glory to hateful earth, being truly God and truly man, to rescue us from God's just wrath. And only God and true humanity could redeem us by living perfectly in our place and dying substitutionary there on the cross for us. What love! What amazing love! God loves you. Jesus loves you. He must love you. He took your sins and mine on the cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And that payment for sin is made in Christ and accepted in Christ Jesus alone. The, here's wonderful news. You and I 
can be forgiven. Forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, if we put our trust in Jesus today instead of ourselves. Will you come? Will you put your trust in Jesus today? You know Jesus welcomes any sinner. You know that you need him. He will not turn you away. If you look to Christ, he will receive you. If you come to Jesus convicted and convinced of your sins, looking for mercy and put your trust in him, he will not turn you away. It's only in Jesus that you can really appreciate the words, do not grieve, do not mourn. You can hear that on resurrection morning, right, in the New Testament. He's not here. He's alive. He's risen. Wipe away those tears. It's been done. The generous provision in the celebration in Nehemiah is a foretaste, friends, even more so of the new creation that's going to be ushered in through Jesus. Now, I don't want to miss the real just substantial drama of the text. Notice the author mentions joy here. It's about the joy of the Lord. Is our strength, is your strength. Closely related to gladness and happiness, although joy is a, more of a state of being than an emotion as the as some lexicons put, a result of choice, one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's something unique about the joy that God gives. It's just different. Having joy is part of the experience of being a Christian. Why do you see some Christians get happy in church? That's why. Faith based on the Word will produce joy that will weather the storms of life. And so Jesus gives us a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities beloved isn't it so good to know all is well between you and god because of jesus oh my goodness joy is not the result of more money or sex or power or praise joy of the lord occurs when those circumstances are the most painful and severe and we have we know no matter what pain i'm experiencing here i'm still right with god through christ my my savior I can have joy because in the day my sins are all paid for. I have peace with God through his cross. And that's the only way you can have peace with God. You've got to come to the cross. You've got to come to Christ. The world says joy comes in knowing your authentic lust and living for yourself. And your authentic self, that's out of hell. God's word says joy comes in knowing the Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Joy is a gift from God. Jesus is the gift of God. And so to have, to have joy and not have Jesus makes no sense. You can't, they go together. Joy is a gift from God, and such believers ought to manufacture it, but to delight in the blessing they already possess. I don't have to work up joy in the church. I don't need to go to Kayla and say, Kayla, really, do this on the piano, and let's, 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 let's do this with the music, let's alter it, let's, let's do some things with the light to stir them. No. We already have it if we have Christ. Look at verse 10 fresh now. This joy, this inward sense of celebration, which is the joy, like this, which is the joy that the Lord gives. You can render it like that. Is to be to them strength. The joy of God is strength. A strong citadel or refuge because the Almighty is their God. When they are in trouble, God's people know the place of their secure refuge. 
It's in Christ the rock. It's in his character and his works and his gifts. Praise the Lord. The only way to be really to really to be strong is to depend upon the unlimited power of God. And we draw strength by faith, asking him to supply us with the resources we lack so that we might be strong for him. He gives the joy in knowing him and knowing his promises. So their stronghold and our stronghold is God's joy to them in saving, restoring, and protecting us. You know that God has saved you from his wrath? He's restored you as a child of God, as a child making, adopting you into his family, and he's protected you forevermore? Death has no sting upon us. He's taken it away. The people were to stop grieving because their strength came from the joy of the Lord and true security then as now, beloved, is found in Christ alone. Joy really is the proper response to an assurance that we are loved by God. Matthew Henry said, The joy of the Lord in the goodness of God under the direction and government of the grace of God, joy arising from our interest in the love and favor of our God and the token of his favor. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous hand. He will hold me fast. After they had wept, they rejoiced. And holy mourning takes, makes way. When you mourn over sins, here's the comfort. It makes way for holy rejoicing. And those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And those that tremble at the convictions of the word may triumph in the consolations of it. Stop mourning, rejoice. Warren Risby said, It's wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. End quote. So if you're down in the dumps about your failings and down in the dumps about your performances and your, your sorrow, friends, is misplaced if you're in Christ, you are not by faith rejoicing in the goodness of God to cover your sins. Is Jesus not sufficient, beloved? He is. Oh, praise the Lord, he's so sufficient. Let this encourage us not to think about uh, our righteousness wrongly. For example, are you more of a legalist than you realize, and perhaps that's why you are a sour Christian to be around? You know, these festivals were signs that the relationship with God is not merely about rules. Again, Mr. Graham noted how some people approach the Christian life as a list of laws. They're constantly trying to please God, forgetting that the Christian faith isn't a set of rules, but a relationship, personal, intimate, daily walk with the living God. When our faith becomes nothing more than a series of rules and regulation, joy flees and our love for Christ grows cold. Rules have their place, but just as a healthy marriage is more than a set of rules, so too is a healthy relationship with Christ. We have to receive by faith that he's covered us. We have to lay aside the fact we could never justify ourselves. Christ paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Whiter than the doors that Bill painted this week. Have, I, have our sins have been washed? 
whiter than snow. Christ has covered us and cleansed us. And so celebrating God's generosity, celebrating His generosity, not our achievements, celebrating His generosity, not our participation trophies, celebrating His generosity brings joy and it leads to celebration giving. No wonder we rejoice uh, so densely singing Jesus thank you this morning. This is not a self-indulgent party. Notice it also includes sending portions to those who have nothing prepared. It was customary for God's people to remember the less fortunate in the covenant community on these joyous occasions. It reminds us, beloved, why do we seek to help others? Is it to increase our look as philanthropists in the community? No. God help us if we, if we start a social media account or a YouTube channel to document how wonderful we are at blessing some people. Oh my goodness. No, we give because the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why the giving's happening. You know, the elders plan to present to you another giving opportunity to a pillar church plant this time in Mexico. We're so excited to take from our abundance and give it to someone else because if God can bless us, who's to say he won't do it down there? We're so excited. Isn't God good? Isn't Jesus sweet? Especially when this world is sour. Give it time. If it's not sour to you today, it will be. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint God. We disappoint each other. But God, whew, he doesn't disappoint. Cling to him. We should be able to sing, even in the valley, I still believe you're good. You keep every promise Every word is true. There's beauty from the ashes in everything you do. Even in the valley, I still believe you're good. That's my favorite Newsboy song, by the way. I love that refrain where he says, I still believe you're working. You're worthy. You're sovereign. You're for me. I still believe it. I still believe it. And I know it because Jesus came to us. And God's word is true. Celebration comes by God's grace in Jesus, beloved. Number, let's go to point three. There can be rejoicing for those who have godly sorrow. Number three, confidence rests upon God's word. Confidence rests upon God's word. Verses 11 and 12. After all the mourning and the commands to rejoice in God, the key verse is verse 12, where it reveals that they were confident to participate in the celebration, look at the text, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. You see that in verse 12? They rejoiced not because they had the fat to eat and the, and, the, and, and the sweet to drink and a great deal of good company, but because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I, <laughs> I once heard a large preacher cheekily say, his life verse was in this section. He would quote the King James where it said, eat the fat and drink the sweet. He said, that was my, he said that's my life verse. Uh, and then he would go, amen. Um, well, you know, I appreciated his humor, and I know he didn't mean that literally. But um, confidence to enjoy God's grace comes by us understanding his word. It comes to us by understanding his word. Matthew Henry noted, the better we understand God's word, the more comfort we find in it. The darkness of trouble of troubles, uh, trouble arises from the darkness, listen to this, of ignorance. Isaiah 61 said, he has, 
sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festival oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. So that's the, this Isaiah verse reminds us that God's, this mourning is expressive of Israel's sorrow over the exile and the sins that it caused. But God takes that mourning and he changes it. And he does it ultimately through his son. Jesus said, blessed are the mournful because they'll inherit those reversals that Isaiah 61 talks about. They shall be comforted. Comforted where? In Jesus. You cannot find comfort in your spouse today, not ultimate, not in children, not in money, not in more things. Eventually, anxieties and troubles are coming to visit you. Sometimes they just won't leave. There's only one who can help you. His name is Jesus. He is our comfort. He is our stronghold. There's no one like Jesus. Friends, God would be just to leave us in ignorance ignorant of conviction, ignorant of his redemption. But the revealing of Christ and of God is privileged, glorious information that we've received. God reveals himself so we might understand his holiness and his love. And when the words were first declared to these people here, uh, to them they wept, but when they understood God's promises, they rejoiced finding at length precious promises made to those who repented. There was hope for them. And there's hope for all of you today. Love of joy, it really is the proper response to an assurance, to the confidence that we are loved by God as his word is believed. Joy is the proper response as an, to an assurance, to the confidence that we are loved by God as his word is believed. God loves you. I mean, I wonder what happened when they, when they were understanding these things. Did they jump up and down? Did they raise a toast glass? Did they dance? Uh, what do you do in your heart when you realize God's promise of restoration to any repent, who repent and believe? You know, maybe someone did a, a little jig out in the, hall, in, the, in the street. I don't know. I like to think there was a man who, 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 man who was there as the word was applied to him and he understood that he got the best sleep of his life after learning of God's redeeming love. I like to think there was a young woman who was, who was buried in her shame but now could walk in the dignity of God's redemption. I like to think that right there in that crowd, there was a young man who realized that God actually loves him rather than just merely puts up with him. And then being inspired then to walk in the love and forgiveness of God. I like to think there were people like that there. Would you believe me if I told you that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, takes almighty joy in those who put their faith in Jesus? Would you believe me if I told you that God is pleased with you through Christ and by the fruit of the Spirit in you? How do we know he's pleased with us? He tells us in his word, Zephaniah 3.17, Joyce Hearn in her favorite verse, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Oh, man. God rejoices over us. Though he knows uh, we're in process of becoming all that he has planned for you, us to become, he rejoices over us. And isn't it worth celebrating knowing that you, have, you never have a reason to give up and that you're not alone? Jesus is with you, reassuring you on to victory. He's at your side to strengthen and encourage you in the Holy Spirit. 
The world says to fix your eyes on your phone, heaven help us. And to feed your anxiety and your circumstances. But God says to fix your eyes on Jesus. The world, word of God understood helps us to see life differently. Just as you see it happen here. And so the Lord's rejoicing over his people. Resting in his love. They are resting in his love for them. And singing joyfully and celebrating over these incomprehensible yet precious truths understood. How do you under, what's a good way to illustrate God's reception of you and I in Christ? What's a good way to illustrate our Lord's love and rejoicing over us? I don't have it, an illustration, but Jesus did. Listen to this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hard workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Because this one who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Well, friends, you may have great sorrow over the depths and the dark places your sin has taken you. But never look at God as if he doesn't welcome sinners back. And he wants to bring you into a celebration like you can't imagine. Through his son, the Lord Jesus. You see, only God through Jesus and by the Spirit can make the wicked sad and the righteous rejoice. Let's pray. Pierce us and heal us by your word and the power of the Spirit to the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray.